the Great Barrington Declaration, you may have heard of it, uh, has gathered some steam. Basically, uh, I'm going to read a little bit off, off the, uh, the Barrington Agreement. It says, as infectious disease epi- epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging and physical and mental impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call a focused approach. And essentially what they are saying is, I'm not going to read out the whole thing to you, right? But they're talking about lockdowns, the devastating effect of lockdowns, and they believe that herd immunity is the key, if indeed, and that will be obviously helped along the way, I suppose, by vaccines as well uh, when they come along. Another one, by the way, this morning has just been announced. That's 94% effective, according uh, to the vaccine makers. Uh, So those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume their normal life. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying at home when you're sick should be practiced by everybody to reduce the herd immunity threshold and schools and universities and everything else should open back up as normal. And I want to know if you agree with that or you think that's a good idea to give me some insight into how it's affecting not only our physical but our mental health is uh, Elaine Tow- or Ellen Townsend is a professor of psychology at the Faculty of Science at the University of Nottingham and she joins me on the line. Uh, good afternoon to you, Ellen. Good afternoon, Niall. Uh, Alan, it's a tough time for everybody around the world, not just because of COVID-19, but are we using a sledgehammer to crack a nut? Well, that is um, an analogy that has been used, hasn't it? And it's curious, now that we know so much more about COVID-19 and how it has a very specific age-related impact. And I think the curious thing for me, um, working partly in public health as I do with some of my work, is that when we've identified groups that are at high risk of an illness or disease or disorder, we would target resources to that high-risk group. Well, as we've always done, and tried to protect those who would be most vulnerable, particularly those who would be elderly as well and over the age of 85. Now, you signed the Great Barrington Declaration. You're one of the co-signees of this. Um, There's a lot of people. It got a bit of bad press on Sky News when it came out first. Some of these are very qualified epidemiologists, virologists, uh, qualified professors like yourself uh, who deal in the psychology. So let's focus on the psychology. What damage do you believe lockdowns and restrictions and the lack of interaction or social interaction between human beings is currently doing to us at the moment? What damage is it doing to us? Well, unfortunately, the evidence is amassing across a number of um, studies now. I mean, there are some, luckily, very high-quality national studies that were ongoing before the pandemic hit. So we have, if you like, baseline data as to what was happening before. And across a number of these studies, we're seeing increases in you know, diagnosis of mental health disorders in terms of suicide ideation. So that's people thinking about having thoughts about suicide. And, and not just in this country, in, in, in many countries that yeah. have, um, have had lockdowns. So it's not a belief. We have hard evidence um, that lockdowns are having a hugely deleterious effect, particularly on young people. I was going to say, there was research there recently mm. in the UK that I think it was one in four young people had thought about suicide over the last seven or eight months, which is a shocking figure, isn't it? Something, I think it was something like that I heard on Sky there recently. Yeah, so that, that, was, that was a study from the States, and then we've had a, a study in the UK led by a group in Scotland that showed that in the first weeks of lockdown, suicide ideation went up significantly, particularly in the youngest group that they studied. And and so, you know, over such a short period of time, I think that's what, you know, is worrying many people. Mm -hmm. And we we know from NHS Digital Research, so one of these really good quality cohort studies that, you know, now, you know, one in six 
young people in a classroom um, might be diagnosable with a mental health disorder where previously it's one in nine. So that tr- translates to sort of five, five children in a class of 30 compared to three children in a class of 30. So, you know, the longer these restrictions go on, unfortunately... Uh, the more the impact is likely to be. I mean, I did read recently that there was a study done, I think it was done some 20 years ago, on the damage that social isolation can do to humans and primates. Uh, it was a large, major study done on it. But it talked about not only the mental, but the physical damage that isolation can do. So I'm assuming, I, I, I don't understand this, the kind of the, the health aspects of it, you would understand that better than me, but Obviously, having isolation not only damages you mentally, but is there something to do with endorphins and all these other things that we get from interacting with each other and, I suppose, being excited to see each other and, and to love each other and just be together? Is that, does that have a physical? Does it pre- present itself some physical way as well? I think it does, and I think, you know, what you're describing is the fact that we are fundamentally social beings. We, we want to be together. Um, it, it's beneficial for us to be together from top to, you know, the elderly, we thrive on each other's company. And we, you know, as tiny children, that's how we learn about the world. And, and so I think we know that from you know, studies of loneliness, loneliness can be as damaging to your health as smoking and obesity. Mm-hmm. And a recent rapid systematic review of loneliness in young people suggested that the mental health impacts can be felt nine years later. So we're talking about very, very serious impact on something which is just a fundamental human need. And when we talk about the damage that we're doing to people, and we, we mentioned, you know, using a sledgehammer to crack a nut, I mean, you signed this declaration, and the declaration, of course, calls for the immediate lifting of all restrictions. Uh, within reason, they, they obviously talk about, you know, you continuing with the, the basic hygiene of washing your hands, and if indeed you feel you're vulnerable and you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. Uh, but everybody else should go back to work, go back to normal, and then we focus our efforts on protecting those, let's say, in care homes, for example, and other people who would be vulnerable. Do you agree with that? Do you believe everything should just open back up tomorrow and we should just basically try to live with the virus? Well, that's exactly what the sort of pandemic playbook has been up until this point. And it's what countries like Sweden have done. They've just, um, they, they made a mistake not protecting the elderly in care homes early on, which I think they, they've recognised. But we don't generally stop society for, you know, really bad flu years. So there's had a really bad flu year in 2018. And, um, you know, we didn't stop society and hospitals were pressured, but, but they coped. And so I think what's worrying me is the, the focus of science and medicine on one disease at the expense of everything else. I mean, heart attacks, mental health and suicide, um, you know, cancer, all these things are not going away. And yet we're spending all our resources on one issue. And what about the risks involved in what they call the herd immunity plan? Now, at the moment, obviously, we've heard now last week Pfizer released their information on a 90% successful vaccine. 94, another one today. I'm not too sure who the one uh, today was from. Uh, but that's 94% successful. These vaccines probably going to be with us maybe by April or so. Um, that will assist, obviously, in the herd immunity for those who want to take it. I, d- I don't believe in mandatory vaccinations, but for those who want to take it. Um, do you think there's any risk to that? I mean, I mean, are we looking at collateral damage of letting the virus run free and that being a risk where the governments will argue what we're doing at the moment is slowing down the spread to try and manage it? Well, I think the whole letting it rip um, uh, scenario has been a gross mischaracterization of, of what's suggested 
Um, and it's a, it's, what's envisaged is a slow spread, um, which is what happens in normal times. And actually that protects people. And what, what's worrying about lockdowns is that you get excess deaths. So in the UK, we've had 21,000 at least, probably up to 30,000 now deaths caused by lockdown. These are people that would not have died if lockdown hadn't occurred. And the figure is about 100,000 in America. Um, so, you know, These are the unquantifiable deaths where we shorten people's lives by not going for that early diagnosis of cancer or not going to the doctor when you felt that twinge in your side or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Yep, dying and not going to hospital soon enough because you're worried mm-hmm. about, you know, about COVID. So I think the whole letting it rip thing is, is just a mischaracterization. And, and actually, you know, herd immunity isn't a strategy per se. It's what happens either with the vaccine or with natural immunity. That will be the end, end game and when the virus becomes endemic. Uh, in society. I know it's not really your field, but obviously vaccination, you know, the vaccines have been kind of in the news over the last week, particularly now that we've got two of them. I believe there's four altogether probably before the end of, before we get to Christmas. Uh, What's your view on a vaccine that seems to have been developed very quickly, the quickest in history, actually? Uh, What's your view on that? And, And there seems to be a cautiousness by people to say, oh, well, I'll wait for a few months till everyone else takes it first and make sure it's okay. Can you understand that cautiousness? I, th- I think so, and I think there have been some problems with um, the, you know, kind of communication around the vaccine and safety and so on. And as someone who teaches evidence-based practice, I would want to see very high-quality data on safety and effectiveness. I mean, we're all up to date with vaccines in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every year academics run the gauntlet with flu. I <laughs> being faced with, you know, halls full of students, and we tend to have our few flu jabs and so on. So. I mean, ultimately, many of these issues, I think, need to be based on good evidence and really clear public health messaging. And both of those things have been sorely lacking throughout this crisis. There seems to be a kind of desperation to just get it out there, doesn't there? I think so, because um, this is the chosen path. So suppression at all costs, rather than considering, you know, um, perhaps focused protection or some middle ground where we can get as many people back to what looks like normal life. As, as but will possible. we ever, but here's the thing, Alan, will we ever get back to normal life? Because realistically, we've been almost socially conditioned at this stage, particularly young people, uh, very young children, you know, who are being told about this, not to hug their friends, not to touch their friends, not to get close to their friends. And they're like sponges picking up all this information. Have we changed human beings? I mean, in this short space of time, because I mentioned before, that we can see how easy it was, say, for religion many, many years ago to control people by saying, if you don't live the way we tell you to live, you'll go to hell. Now the governments are doing exactly the same thing by saying, if you don't live how we tell you to to live, you'll either die or kill somebody else with this virus. So is it going to be difficult for us to socially condition back to normal life? That's that's such a difficult question to answer. Um, I really hope that we can. And again, I think it's around sensible messaging and context. We have to have a compassionate and holistic approach to this disease and all diseases. All life matters. It shouldn't be that COVID deaths matter more than cancer deaths and suicides and heart attacks. We have to look at things in the round, and we're not doing that at the moment. 
And in relation to finally the Barrington Agreement itself, or the Barrington, Barrington Declaration, shall I say, uh, you've signed this. It got very bad press initially. Uh, I don't see why, because I don't see why these people who are experts, including yourself, are being discredited when other ones are not being discredited just because they happen to agree with, I suppose, the chosen agenda at the moment. Have you had any bad press in relation to this or a bad reaction in any way uh, to signing or being a co-signer on the, on the declaration? Not personally. Um, I know that um, some people have, um, but one never knows the impact that it might have on, you know, um, one's career and so on. Um, That's what I'm saying. Was it a bit of a decision for you? Because, I mean, we've had some eminent doctors in this country who stepped forward and said, you know, that this is no more dangerous than the flu under the age of 65, for example, or for certain groups, and they've lost their jobs. Yeah. Well, I've always taken evidence-based approach. Um, and so for me, it's about weighing the evidence. It's about being very clear about that evidence. And I don't think what I've been saying from June when I wrote my first blog about my concerns about the mental health in um, young people, I think those arguments still hold very strong. And, um, and I think there is a recognition that we, we have to be creative. We, you know, we can't, you know, humanity won't survive. If we trash our economies globally, you know, we are going to end up in a very bad space. We do have to be creative. And I, you know, I really hope that the vaccine is successful and that gives mm-hmm. people confidence to get back to normal. And I think one of the big issues has been the scaremongering and frightening people. And we need to get people back into a space where they feel that they can go about their lives as normally as possible. I mean, and that is the big problem at the moment that the, the media in general have sort of done such a wonderful job, a sterling job, of essentially terrorising people with, with, with COVID-19. Now, don't get me wrong, obviously people, I'm not denying that it exists and people have died, people have obviously died. Um, but th- this idea of, and I don't know whether they're still doing it in the UK, I think they are, but every day at six o'clock on our national television station, national news, we have figures being thrown at people of how many people died, how many people are sick today. And this constant, this many cases and that many cases uh, through PCR testing, which some people doubt the validity of, is scaring people. And one of your tweets, by the way, just to finish it off, says over 500 children did not receive cancer treatment needed because of yeah. the lockdown. A child of a close friend had a brain tumour as a child, treated and recovered. Now at Cambridge, would this have happened if that child needed treatment this year? Probably not, is the answer, I would imagine. Alan. Yeah. Listen, thank you very yeah, much, Lee, for joining us, and, and, and I appreciate okay. you taking the kind. Sorry, you want to say something finally there before you go? Go ahead. No, that's fine, Niall. Cheers. Okay, listen, thank you very much indeed. That is uh, Professor Ellen Townshead, who has signed the Great Barrington Declaration. You can look it up online, by the way, if you just do a Google search for the Great Barrington Declaration. It's a group of experts, experts, they are experts, epidemiologists, virologists, uh, scientists, uh, and other doctors who have signed it as well. Thousands and thousands of doctors, some of them obviously more professional than others. You're always going to get a few nutters on there as well. But the majority of those people, uh, very eminent people, just as qualified as the individuals who maybe work in Neffet and other places who will tell you something different. But they believe that lockdowns are not the answer and will do more damage to society in the long term than it will good.